embracing our imperfect journey of recovery. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. To any new listeners, I'd like to introduce myself so you know what the hell you're stepping into. I'm Andrea. I'm a recovering alcoholic, addict, codependent, an adult child of a dysfunctional family, and once peed my pants at a Roos Chris Steakhouse stone cold sober. So y'all have been warned. So today, we are diving deep into breaking the stigma of addiction, and I am talking to William Cope Moyers. He is the VP of Public Affairs and External Relations at Hazleton Betty Ford, which is the nation's largest nonprofit alcohol and drug rehab provider. So William is the perfect example of how the disease of addiction does not discriminate. William is the son of Bill Moyers, who is a journalist, a political commentator. He served as the White House press secretary in the Johnson administration. And in 1994, Bill found himself pulling his son out of a crack house in Atlanta, his son being today's guest, William. Now, William and his parents have played an extremely important role in breaking the stigma of addiction. Um, And William also played an important role in getting insurance companies to recognize addiction as a disease. So this is somebody who has had a huge impact. You know, I think one of my gifts is the ability to create a space where people feel comfortable getting raw and vulnerable with virtually a stranger. And that really comes through in this interview, uh, especially towards the end. So make sure you listen to it in its entirety. But I knew that this would be an interesting conversation regardless, but it turned out to be a lot more raw and vulnerable than I was anticipating. So let's hop to it. And as always, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple Podcast. If you have not, you need to pause this right now. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200 until you do that shit. Thank you. So it is my pleasure to introduce William Cope Moyers. He is the VP of Public Affairs and Community Relationships at Hazelden Betty Ford, and he is the author of several books, but most importantly, your New York Times best-selling memoir, Broken, My Story of Addiction and Redemption. And to my understanding, that's in the Library of Congress, correct? Well, yes. I mean, yeah, that, well, I wrote that Welcome. Book. Welcome. Yeah, thank you, Andrea. Thank <laughs> you. And thanks for having me on. Um, I, I love to fill the space of podcasts with meaningful subjects, with meaningful people, so to be able to connect a meaningful topic with a meaningful person and my own mission at Hazel and Betty Ford is perfect. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. And yeah, um, so I wrote that book in 2006. It's a memoir. There are, you know, addiction memoirs are a dime a dozen, but mine has endured because, um, well, it's still in print. It's in its fourth printing. I wrote it, what, 15, 16 years ago. It's still relevant. Even though, as we're going to discuss, a lot has changed in my life. And in my life in recovery, I've experienced the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And a lot of that experience is not in Broken. So um, if you read Broken, the disclaimer should be that you will be reading about my life and learning about my perspective up until 2006. And here we are in 2021, getting ready to go into 2022. So a lot has changed. But yeah, it's still around. It's still a good book. Um, it helps a lot of people and it gets me connected to people like you. Wonderful. Well, before I, I do want to talk about what's happened since then. Um, but first, I just want to say, I really want to thank you for the influential role you've played in kind of breaking the stigma related to addiction. 
you know, you're kind of the, the poster child as far as, you know, this disease does not discriminate. Uh, it right. doesn't matter what our skin color is or what our, you know, socioeconomic background is. I mean, you are the, the son of a former White House press secretary turned crackhead, <laughs> turned man in recovery. So, yeah, I just wanted to, you know, can you speak upon that? Sure, sure. I am. You know, I've been around a long time um, and a lot of people would not know my father, the journalist Bill Moyers, uh, but a lot of people do. And a lot of people did when I was sort of coming out in the mid 90s as a person in recovery. My father was an esteemed uh, journalist at public broadcasting uh, for a long, long time, won many, many Emmys. He and my mother, Judith Davidson Moyers, um, she's the executive producer of many of his programming. They've had a very successful career. They're still living, by the way. My dad's 87, my mother's 86. They've been married for 67 years, which is wow. remarkable. We can come back to that. The point of that is that um, I come from a background of means and prominence. Uh, my father was very well respected. He was Lyndon Johnson's chief of staff and press secretary in the 60s, and he helped set up the Peace Corps under President Kennedy in 1961. Also, when I was born in 1959, uh, and for those who might be a little bit slow, that makes me 62 today. <laughs> but uh, when I was born in 59, my father was in seminary. And he and my mother pastored a small church in Central Texas. And so the reason that's all germane to this conversation and to my story is that I come from this background where you would not necessarily expect um, that addiction could come knocking. I, I don't come from a perfect family, but I do come from a family where my parents loved me and continue to love me unconditionally. I lacked for nothing emotionally, morally, financially, or spiritually. I mean, I even had a faith a belief in a higher power growing up. You know, a lot of people think addiction is because your skin color isn't white or you live under a bridge or you're from San Francisco or you're from Minneapolis. No, addiction doesn't discriminate. And, and, and so I had all the things, I had all the assets that many people would perceive should have pushed back against addiction. Mm -hmm. I got a vulnerable brain and other things. And we can talk about that. And so, yeah, I became susceptible to addiction. And despite my upbringing, despite um, everything that I was given growing up, um, I was bankrupt, uh, spiritually, emotionally, morally, and financially bankrupt and living in a crack house in Harlem, New York, when I hit bottom mm -hmm. the first time in 1989. So, yeah, that's the that's the, the essence of my story. And because I do have a, a, a because I do have a of a, a family history of means and prominence. When I went to work for Hazelden in the mid nineties, I became very quickly um, a very intriguing person for, you know, audiences to hear from because, um, because I didn't fit the perce perception uh, of the addict and the alcoholic. I was the antithesis to the stigma of mm -hmm. addiction, which oftentimes is a stigma that um, people don't think should look like me or you. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I, I love about broken is the, the letters that you read that your father yeah. wrote you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the one thing that really stood out to me is he's, he's stern, he's direct, but in a very compassionate and loving way. And there was never any shaming, um, which I thought was very, I don't know. It was just very, like very loving and compassionate and just no kind of shame or belittlement of you, which really stood out to me. Yeah. My dad's letters are powerful as is my mother's experiences, which don't come out as strongly necessarily in the book as my father's letters. I'm very lucky. I, I'm from an older generation when fathers and mothers still wrote daughters and sons letters, you know, and I kept all my letters from my father and my mother to a lesser extent. Um, and when I wrote Broken, I pulled those letters out of an old camp trunk and I began to read them and realized that my father was in some ways um, quite prescient mm -hmm. in his perceptions around my struggles. But on the other hand, was was quite like many other parents when they can't quite figure out what's happening to that son or, they, or that daughter that they love. So my father's letters are very powerful in, in the story. Um, and, and they think they show that um, addiction is cunning and baffling and powerful. And it, and, it, and, it, and that applies not only to the addict in the dynamic, but also to the family members. Family members can be just as ignorant or just as uh, hurt by addiction as we can be. So those letters are very powerful. And, you know, that scene where my mother came to the crack house in Harlem in the summer of 89 and grabbed me by my collar and implored me to come with her. Um, 
there was never any meanness in my parents' um, approach to helping me. There was never any um, turning their back on me. But there was a lot of desperation. There was a lot of fear. There was even some anger uh, because they could not figure out why they couldn't get me to get well. Um, and, but, but that scene of my mother imploring me to come and me turning my back on her is just as powerful as my father's letters where he sort of circles around the fact that something's wrong with me, but he can't quite put his finger on it or doesn't want to put his finger on it. I think addiction, I think broken is as much a story of my journey from addiction to recovery, and it is my parents. So in your speech to Congress or Library of Congress, mm-hmm. let's see, I, I wrote down this quote. I've been wanting to ask you about this. <laughs> uh-oh, uh-oh, you're gonna so hold me accountable yeah, now. Here we go. So you said, the last five years of my sobriety have been the toughest five years of my entire life. Yes. Um, I've hit bottom again, only this time I've hit bottom sober. And I've always thought that hitting bottom in a crack house or in a bar was hard. That's easy because I was under the influence in the last five years. I've had to hit bottom stone cold sober. And that was my experience as well at at nine years. Um, these second great surrenders, right? It is so much more powerful. It's so much more painful when you're sober. So I've been wanting to ask you about this. Tell me about your bottoms in sobriety. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Not, not too many people have ever asked me about that, even though I've alluded to that in lots of speeches since then. So I gave that speech at the library of Congress. I think it was about 2010. Yeah. It was Somewhere 20, right September, in there. September 28th, 2010. There you go. So it was uh, almost uh, uh, eleven years ago to you know to, to now when we we're recording this podcast, and 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 um, and it, and it has to do with the, the reality that for many many years after I found a recovery from addiction, when I came out of a crack house in 1994, between 1994 and 2005, so for about 11, 12 years, my journey looked like the bull looked looked like the the graph of a bull stock market. In other words, it was going up. There might've been some little, little of this, but mostly my journey from the bottom of the crack house was this. And then I wrote this book and it became a New York times bestseller. And I got to make lots and lots of speeches, but you know, what was remarkable about it, Andrea, is that um, at that same moment that broken was coming out, um, I was starting to spiral into a bottom of, around um around uh, the death of my marriage. And uh, when I say that, um, I had been married to um, my, my wife, Allison. Uh, we've been together since 1989, 1990. She's the mother of my, our three beautiful children, um, Henry, Thomas, and Nancy. And that's another story we can come back to if you'd like. And, and then all of a sudden in um, 2005, 2006, as, as Broken was coming out, um, our marriage began to unravel. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, I don't know that it's appropriate to talk about them, but the bottom line is, is that we each had a, we each had a, some skin in the game as it relates to the problem. And um, it didn't work and my heart was broken. Uh, and uh, there's nothing more painful uh, than having a broken heart. Um, and to have a broken heart in recovery, to have a broken heart that far down along the journey, um, I hit bottom sober. It was painful because to your point, I felt it, you know, and I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want that relationship to die. And yet, um, and so I started going to Al-Anon, to be candid with you, I started going to Al-Anon. And by the way, none of this is in broken because it all happened right then and afterwards. But um, I started going to Al-Anon to fix my marriage Mm -hmm. and fix my wife. How'd that work for you? (laughs) Well, it it didn't. That's exactly the point. You get it. And and what I discovered is that I, I can't, I can't fix things like that. All I can do is fix me to the extent that I'm still fixable. Um, wow, was that ever eye-opening, startling, you know? I discovered that it was much easier to let go of alcohol and other drugs than it is to let go of other people. Mm. Because, um, you know, uh, because especially the people that you I love or I'm convinced should just do what I tell them to do, right? It didn't work that way. And I, it was brutal. It was brutal. So between like the time Broken came out to 2007, 2008, 
2009, uh, my, my marriage unraveled on me and we had these little kids. And when Allison and I were um, divorced and, you know, she's a hero and broken, but when we were divorced, she decided to move back to Bermuda, which is where she's from. And that's a long way from here, here in Minnesota. It's a long way from anywhere. And um, so I was left with my three children to largely parent them by myself. Whoa. Um, and that was hard. And that was really hard. So I guess sort of the, the sum it up, Andrea, is that um, um, what unraveled for me was the thing that most mattered to me, which was my 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 relationship and 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 um, and that discovery, that sharp awareness, that just startling realization that um, I became a double winner. You know, uh, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and an addict in recovery and I'm somebody who's codependent um, and and and. And how much more difficult it was for me to let go of somebody that I cared about. So that was my bottom, really. Um, and, and it was painful, in part because I think a lot of us find recovery and we just sort of expect it's going to end up like the end of the rainbow. Right. And don't get me wrong. It sure is better. I mean, the only thing more difficult than living life drunk or stoned is living life. Or the only thing more difficult than living life sober is living life drunk. If you take away the drunk part, it's still hard, mm-hmm. especially when you get to be older, when, you know, when you've got health issues and relationship issues and parenting issues and all those things. I always thought that when I found sobriety, when I found recovery, that um, it would be like the the graph of the bull market. Up, I would go up, up, up. And no, there's a lot of good things in recovery, but there's a lot of hard experiences as well. Say goodbye your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Yeah, that was my experience exactly too. I just, for me, I, the message that I received in early sobriety from people with time, and I don't know if this is actually what was said or not, it probably was not, but the message that I received was that, yeah, life on life's terms still happens, but that pain of our own making ceases the day that we got sober. And so when I was hitting my adult child bottom, there was so much shame in that because it wasn't that I was experiencing pain, but that it was because I was the culprit of my pain, you know? Um, but at the same time, you know, people like us, we don't really have transformational growth unless we're in a lot of pain. At least that's been my experience. So just really learning to embrace that, that, okay, we can come in and um, yeah, maybe we get sober and, and we never experience pain anymore, but that means that we're probably not growing very much. So just learning how to really embrace, um, embrace our pain and see it, the larger purpose of it. Yes. And I, and, and I wouldn't wish any pain on anybody. Uh, right. I mean, I, I, we all want to live a pain-free life, uh, literally and figuratively, but that's not the way the world spends. That's not what life is all about. Life is filled with pain. And to your point, it's during those painful times that we have to be able to continue to walk our walk. However, we walk it as people in recovery and there are many pathways to recovery. So we, I mean, I went to treatment at Hazelden 32 years ago this month, August of 1989, September of 89. I went to treatment at Hazelden. I went there because I thought I had a drug and alcohol problem. Mm -hmm. And I did have a drug and alcohol problem. But what I discovered there and in the course of the next five years, and I would be in and out of treatment and in and out of sobriety and out of recovery, was um, was that I had much more than just an alcohol or a drug problem. I had a life problem. And the problem I had with my life was that I... I never was content with how it was. You know, the big book of AA talks about people like me being restless, irritable, and discontent in our own skins. We itch. And I always itched with a sense that I wasn't good enough or that I needed to be better than. Um, and so I used substances to, med- to, to medicate that feeling. I did not like being imperfect. Well, guess what? When I finally found recovery, I took away the substances. And what did I discover? I was imperfect. And I didn't like that. But to get over that or to deal with that, I had to feel it. 
It's why in the, in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, or the, 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 the substance is only mentioned one time. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a 12-step recovering pe- person, and as I said, that's how I came into recovery, though I've come to discover there are lots of pathways to recovery. Um, well, I discovered that in the 12 steps, the, the substance is mentioned once in the first step. We, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol or Percocet or weed or other people if it's an Alamon kind of attack, um, we, we were powerless over a substance and our lives become a manable. You don't find another reference to the substance anywhere until you get to the last step where it talks about working with other alcoholics. Why? Because yes, I have a drug and alcohol problem, but my bigger problem is living life without substances, accepting my shortcomings, embracing my imperfections, um, admitting my faults. And holy cow, was that um, hard for me to, was that startling when I realized it and hard for me to live with? And then in 2008, after Broken comes out, there I am at a bottom. You know, the woman I love doesn't love me anymore. Uh, The mother of my three children decides she doesn't want to be a mother. And you talk about an intolerance of life on life terms. I had it in that moment. Now, I didn't use because I knew that using wasn't going to solve it. Um, but I had to sort of experience, to your point, the pain and to sit in it, to sit in what ails us, to sit in the restlessness, irritability and discontent of the moment. That is really hard for people like us, but we have to do it if we're going to continue to recover and if we're going to continue to grow. Yeah, I agree. I I think it's so important that we talk about it because yeah, I think that people feel a lot of shame when they're, they struggle, when they have some time under their belt. And it's, I think it's just so important that we normalize that. And it's, you know, part of the recovery process. Yeah. Yeah. You know, on that note too, is that um, other things happen too, as we get older, you know, it's not just bad relationships or struggles with our children um, or even with our own health. It's um, well, it's nine 11, it's uh, a pandemic. um, It's uh, financial uh, distress. I mean, uh, this, as I said earlier, uh, you know, the only thing more difficult than living life um, sober is living life drunk. And if you take away the drunk part, then we have to live life sober. And that is not easy. Now it beats the alternative, but it is not easy. And I think it's important, particularly for your audience, that people understand that when you and I talk about our recoveries, what we're really talking about is um, how we have managed to walk through life without using, um, you know, and, and, and that's not easy for anybody. Mm-hmm. So, so my bottom at nine years was related to coming to terms with the, the true impact that my upbringing had on me. You know, I, mm-hmm. I grew up with an alcoholic mom and an, a, a workaholic, emotionally unavailable father Uh, I knew that it impacted me, but I also knew that other kids had had it way worse than I had. You know, I was never physically or sexually abused. My wants and most of, you know, my needs and most of my ones were always accounted for. Um, So it was pretty mind blowing for me to really come to terms with truly how much it had impacted me. Um, I'm curious. I mean, it sounds like you grew up in a very loving home, but I'm curious throughout your sobriety, have you had any pivotal awarenesses about, um, faulty beliefs or fears that you developed about yourself during your childhood? Yes. You know, I don't like the term dysfunctional because I think dysfunction (laughs) is like beauty. It's in the eyes of the beholder. Um, and to your point, what can be dysfunction in one family can be sexual assault, physical abuse, um, it sounds like from what you've shared, you didn't experience that. I didn't experience that to, to label, to label my family as being dysfunctional, I think would be doing it an injustice. Um, because I think again, not mine. Not mine. <laughs> well, but, but dysfunction is, you know, open to interpretation, I guess, yeah, I, but, yes. but looking back on it with the benefit of hindsight, which we all do, I can clearly see that my mother and father wanted nothing but the best for me. Um, but, but, but they are also children of the depression. And so they came to parenting with an expectation that 
um, hard work and busyness were the formula for success. And I get that. Um, but um, and so I never had any free time. I was always engaged. I was always in you know, activities at school. I always had a job on weekends. I, um, I was always not just playing on the football team, but also playing in the band during halftime of the football game. I mean, I never had any downtime. My parents pushed me not, they didn't push me to be better than I could be, but they pushed me to be all that I could be. And, and I get that. I get that. I find no fault in it, but it didn't give me any wiggle room. It didn't give me any ability to catch my breath. And to some extent, it, it helped to f- push that bar higher mm. so that I never could get over it. I never could get over it. I was never content with getting um, to the bar. I, and I don't mean bar in terms of an alcoholic bar, but, uh, <laughs> but the bar of, of success, the bar of achievement. I always had to get beyond it. Uh, and you know how impossible that is. Um, you know, I, and I didn't come to terms with that. I mean, I discovered a way out of that at the age of 15. I smoked marijuana for the first time and I finally found ale. I finally found a remedy to what ailed me. And what ailed me was this hole in the soul that you've heard me talk about this, this sense underneath my rib cage aches with the sense of imperfection. I never felt good enough. Mm. Is that my parents fault? No. Did they help to foster that? Yes. Did they do that out of spite? or ignorance. No, they did it because they were parents who just wanted the best for me. So, Mm -hmm. so I guess you could say I come from a dysfunctional family, but again, dysfunction is like beauty. It's in the eyes of the beholder. And so that's why when I raised my own children, by the way, I was always as cautious as I could be maybe to a fault that I did not try to push them too hard. And guess what? Maybe I should have, maybe I should have pushed them a little bit harder or held them to an expectation that was a little bit higher. I didn't do that because of what had happened to me when I was growing up. I just, I just felt like I never measured up, you know, and and some of that was because my father, I come from a family of means and prominence, but some of that was just this sort of the nature of my being, you know, that restlessness, that irritability, that discontent. So, I mean, you know, did that make me an alcoholic? No, it fed my alcoholism. Um, you know, any more than a sexual assault causes somebody to be an alcoholic. It's certainly one of the ways that we medicate what ails us. But I think we're also addicts and alcoholics because we have a vulnerable brain, a genetic predisposition. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So, well, first of all, what I try to make very clear in this podcast is like talking about our upbringings is, has nothing to do with blame. Um, you know, our parents are just a product of their upbringing, just as we are, you know, but that it's so important that we, in order to, to grow and heal from this stuff, we have to name what happens. We can't let it stay in the shadows. Um, but so your, your dad's brother, it sounds like he was an addict. So I just wanted to know, did you get any, like, since that book, what, what else have you learned about the genetics of your family? Yeah, thank you for bringing it up, because that speaks back to what I wanted to talk about that you mentioned to me. And thank you for setting it up that way. You know, I don't come from a dysfunctional family, but there were certain things that we did not talk about. Yeah. And one of them was my dad's brother, my uncle, James, who was eight years older than my father um, and who in the mid to late 1960s died um, suddenly. Uh, at a young age of 39. Um, at the time we were told, and again, I was about eight or nine years old at the time, but at the time we were told that he died of throat cancer and he did have throat cancer. He was a heavy smoker. And again, nicotine addiction is a wicked addiction and it kills just like uh, opioid addiction and uh, alcohol addiction. Um, and so um, my, my uncle James, um, uh, died uh, suddenly, and we were told that uh, it was cancer, and he did have cancer. But what I would later discover, um, only after uh, I began the recovery process, was that my uncle actually took his life, hmm. uh, and, and uh, with an overdose of prescription medication um, that was deliberate. Um, it wasn't an accident, um, and that was a startling realization. In part because a we never talked about that before, and in my family we talked about. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones, the war in Vietnam, Watergate, and all these current events. I come from a family of journalists, but we never talked about that one thing that probably we should have talked about, which was my uncle's struggle with substances and his untimely uh, and tragic death 
um, as a result, uh, and his mental illness, his substance use. Um, and like I said, we didn't talk about that till I began my journey in recovery. Um, mm-hmm. And why that is germane is that this is an important part is because when I was growing up, my grandparents, my uncle's parents, um, oftentimes compared me to mm-hmm. Uncle James, mm-hmm. their son. And oh my goodness, it, yeah, yeah, I was driven, I was an extrovert, um, and I had an addictive personality. And, and, you know, while I never struggled with mental illness the way a lot of people struggle with mental illness, I know that had I been somebody with PTSD or severe depression or um, anxiety, uh, beyond the anxiety that I suffer from, um, I think I might not have made it, mm-hmm. uh, which, is why, which is why it's so important that we be able to talk about our families of origin and why it's so important that we talk about those tragedies in our families that can help to shine some light on our own experiences so that maybe we don't have to follow down that same hole. Well, that's a nice uh, pivot for me too, set up because I wanted to talk with you about just, so you've been at Hazleton since when? What do you say? 96. I came in 96. Yep. Okay. So how have you seen, um, how have you seen the treatment, the recovery process change as far over that period of time, as far as addressing, um, trauma and addressing childhood? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I'm not a clinician. Um, I'm very, very quick to tell people that. And I tell people that in part because I'm asked a lot of good questions. Like you're asking me about clinical processes, which I can speak to, but again, I'm not the expert. I also am quick to preface my remarks about that I'm not a clinician because I get hundreds of requests for help a year, probably <laughs> two, three, four a day. And I, and I can help people find a way out, but I'm not a clinician. So, um, but, but I know enough about the organization because not only was I birthed at Hazelin in 1989 when I started my recovery process, but like you said, I've worked there since 96 and a lot has changed. What hasn't changed is the fact that at Hazelin, now called Hazel and Betty Ford, because we merged with the Betty Ford Center back in 2014, what hasn't changed is our fundamental uh, or our cornerstone of, of treatment, which is the 12 steps. We hang those on the wall. We're proud to hang them on the wall. We know they work. They're applicable to a fair number of, of people. All the people that come to us generally are people we think we can help with the 12 steps. And so that's the same. Nothing's changed there since we were born in 1949 as an organization. We hung those steps on the wall and we're proud of it. But we've come to realize, to your point, that people are a lot sicker than they used to be. Um, in fact, people are more sick than ever before because of the pandemic. It is startling how sick people are when they reach out to me or when their families reach out to me or when they get to one of our treatment facilities. They are really sick because they've been in isolation the last 15 months or whatever you want to say. And so people are sicker. And we've also come to recognize the role that co-occurring disorders or, 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 or you know, depression and substance misuse or anxiety or an eating disorder and substance use, how much those play both in the problem and how much those have to play into the solution. So um, when I went to treatment at Hazel in 1989, about 7% of our patients showed up at the front door with what we call a co-occurring disorder. Today, it's 85%. Part of that's because we're good at diagnosing it. Second of all, it's because people are sicker than they used to be. And so what's changed is how we um, not only diagnose people with the co-occurring disorder, but how we treat them. We believe that before you can do anything else, you've got to arrest somebody's alcoholism or drug dependence. You've got to stop it. But what good is stopping it if you don't also treat what's going on up here or what's going on in their soul? So we've gotten to be very good at addressing trauma. we're, uh, We're very good at diagnosing it. We're very good at diagnosing PTSD or depression or anxiety. Um, uh, and trauma is key to that. We're also gotten to be much better at recognizing family of origin issues and the genetic predisposition, as well as some of the other dynamics that go into not only addressing the problem, but also promoting a solution. And so it's not enough. We know that it's not enough just to have somebody come in and stop drinking or drugging. Actually, as I say all the time, it's easy to stop using. I stopped a thousand times. Mm-hmm. What's hard for me is to stay stopped. To stay stopped means that I address all the other things that are going on in my life or in the life of the world beyond my substance use. 
And so we have come to realize that it's becoming more important to meet people where they are, literally and figuratively, than to expect they're going to come to us. Mm-hmm. Meeting where they are mentally, where they are emotionally, where they are physically. Um, and, and that's why you, you have seen Hazel and Betty Ford open a lot of outpatient sites across the country recently. Um, it's why our family program continues to be critical. It's why our children's program, we have a really well-known children's program. And the children's program is where we, we embrace the children of the alcoholic parent or the drug addicted parent and help that child understand, A, that it's not their fault and that B, um, they need to take care of themselves. So we see that uh, we see the holistic perspective to addiction in a way we didn't used to. And part of that's important because in the old days, people that who went to residential treatment typically went for 28 days, right? Yeah. Well, there's no such thing as a 28 day program anymore. Nobody goes to treatment for 28 days. They go for 17 days. They go for 55 days. But even the treatment piece is not the most important piece. What is important is that continuum, that recovery support, that recovery management piece. Because as I said, it's easy to stop using. It's hard to stay stopped. And to stay stopped means addressing life on life terms, addressing family of origin issues, addressing mental health issues, and then walking that walk. So that's interesting when you talk about how people are sicker and let's take COVID out of it. Do you really believe that people are coming in sicker is it, or is it just that we have more awareness of it? And if you do think that people like that, people are sicker now, what do you think is the cause of that? Well, it take away, it's hard to say that we should address this by taking away the pandemic because the pandemic is here. Not only is it here, not only, I mean, it will fade, but the impact it has had will be as profound as the impact that the opioid um, epidemic has had. And remember, before we were in a pandemic of coronavirus, this nation was being ravaged by an epidemic of opioids mm-hmm. to the extent that more people were dying of accidental overdoses, most of them being opioid overdoses, more people were dying on a yearly basis from from accidental overdoses than were killed in the entire war in Vietnam, which Mm. lasted from like 1963 to 1975. So just recently, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, I think it was the CDC, announced that 93,000 people died of accidental overdoses in 2020. That's a a record on top of a record on top of a record. And there's no doubt that the pandemic is the reason why. So it's hard to take the pandemic away. But if you do take the pandemic away to the point I was trying to make, the opioid opioid epidemic was there and is still there. And people who can be, who have no thought about, you know, the devious or deviant use of substances, they get prescribed a a 60 uh, Percocet for their broken leg that they incurred while skiing. And the next thing you know, they're hunting heroin on the streets of San Francisco or Minneapolis, St. Paul or uh, Miami. And, and so, and so this opioid epidemic is, is, is made people sicker. Um, I also think to be candid with you, Andrea, is that social media um, has, Tightened the screws or fastened the fastened the pace mm-hmm. by which we become an a quote addictive society, and I can't really define that except that come on, all you got to do here going over here, and I have an old this is this is what technology addiction is. I know, <laughs> numbingly doing this right, this you know just doing it over and over and over again, and you know that's what is defined, that's what defines insanity. That's also what defines addiction, doing something over and over and over again to the detriment. So long-winded answer to your question is people are sicker. They're sicker because of the pandemic. They're sicker sicker because of the misappropriation or the overly prescribed opioids. They're sicker because of marijuana and they're sicker because our society has become so polarized and so electrified through Mm -hmm political discourse and technology. I know. I think that everybody on social media, you should have to be actively working the 12 steps. If you want to have a Twitter account or something like, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I think it was on 
it was Christmas. There was a headline here in San Francisco that there had been throughout the whole pandemic, there had been 173 COVID deaths. And in that same time period, there had been 621 fatal overdoses, you know, there you go. There you go. Yeah. I mean, I'm at a loss. I don't know how, how you fix this. What, like, what, what are your thoughts on what can be done to, to help this? Well, look at what we're doing right here. Your podcast, and and by the way, you're not paying me to do this, so I'm not saying this because you're paying me. I'm doing this because I, when you invited me, when you reached out to me out of the blue and invited me to be honest, it's impossible for me to turn down invitations like this because I'm a person who believes in helping other people. And the best way to help other people is to get out there and say, here I am. This is what I look like. I'm here to help you. And so um, what you and I are doing and having a podcast conversation, there's no doubt in my mind that as a result of this, of what we're doing today, we will benefit people tomorrow, next week, next month, whenever this thing airs and however long it lasts. So I think the antidote to what's happening in this country now is to, a, to start to talk about it like we are. And talk about it not as the sort of the PhD, uh, MSW, um, scholarly, academic perspectives, but from the down in the trenches like you and I are you disclose that you're a woman in recovery. I'm a man in recovery. This is how we ought to be talking about it. Not that there isn't room for the academics the, and the, the medical uh, experts. There is, but we need to be talking about it more. We need to be talking about it more, acknowledging that we have this big problem in this country, but we also know what the solution is. And the solution looks like you and me, among others. Um, I think that's the most important thing that we can do. And it, if we are not willing to talk about addiction, the same way we talk about COVID or the same way we talk about breast cancer or the same way we talk about HIV AIDS, then we're never going to really be able to get beyond where we are. That's why I've been doing my work at Hazel and Hazel and Betty Ford since 1996. Um, and it's just as relevant to what, and what I do today is just as relevant as it was when I first started doing it, which is getting out there and talking about it. We didn't have podcasts in 96. We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have Facebook. As much as we can talk about the downside of social media, the upside is it allows us to do this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think the more we do this, the better chance we have to send people that message that, you know what, addiction looks like this among others faces and that the solution to it is the way that Andrea and William are talking about it and living it in their own lives. So that's the most important thing that we can do. And whether it's educating doctors in med school or building recovery community organizations in California or in New York or in Texas or, um, or getting recovering people to stand up and speak out, we have come a long way, but we have a long way to go in helping society to understand that addiction is a disease that doesn't discriminate, but but treatment works and recovery is possible. Mm -hmm. So what does recovery look like for you today? So what, what it, you just celebrated what? 33 years? No, I, I, well, it, see here, here, here's the other thing that you just raised, which is what is recovery? You know, I mean, what, I, there's this old saying that what good is, if you sober up a horse thief, what do you have but a, a sober horse thief? I mean, and so, so what good is that? You know, I mean, so, so what is recovery? And this is where I think our field has fallen down. Not much has changed since I began to walk my walk in 1989 in terms of defining what success looks like. Um, if, so I say that because I don't have 30, I, start, I went to treatment at, I was locked up in a psychiatric ward in New York city in 1989. Um, that's not my sober date, but that's, but I actually count my recovery from that day, August of 1989. I began to move from the problem to the solution. I began to commit myself imperfectly to being a better person who did not use substances or somebody who did not use substances who strove to be a better person. Um, that began 32 years for me. And all, all the good things I have in my life today, I can attribute to starting my journey in August of 1989. That's not my sober date. And, and beyond, and besides, what is sobriety? Um, I mean, if you stop using heroin, but you're still smoking cigarettes, are you sober? If you stop using Percocet, but you're taking Suboxone, um, are you sober? Uh, and I would say, yeah, I, I would say that there's, there, there's more to sobriety than abstinence. 
And there's more to recovery than sobriety. So I've been walking my recovery journey since I was locked up in a psych ward in 1989. There was a period where I had a complete period of total abstinence in, in, in my recovery journey. That was 20 some odd years. And then in about 2012, 2013, again, you won't find this in Broken, but you'll find it in my next book. I had a run-in with pain medication. Mm. I was given prescribed pain meds for a chronic neuralgia in my jaw over some botched dental surgery that I had. And I was prescribed those pain meds by three doctors, two of whom were doctors in recovery and two of whom had been dealing with me for over 20 years as a man in recovery. And they gave me those pain meds. And guess what? Uh I liked them. I liked them. I liked them. And I couldn't get off of them of my own free will. I couldn't get on my knees and pray and stop taking those pain meds or quiet that craving brain. I couldn't go to my 12-step meeting and find the solution there. So you know what? I need to start, start taking some prescribed medication to quiet my craving brain. And I was prescribed Suboxone. Mm-hmm. And I started taking Suboxone to quiet my craving brain. And also it had an off-label used to treat some of this chronic uh, neurology that I had. And when I went back into the 12-step rooms and identified that I was somebody who'd been taking Suboxone. I was shamed. Mm. I was told that I wasn't sober. I was Mm. told that I couldn't speak in the meeting, that I needed to go to a first step. Mm. So when you ask me um, how long I've been, you know, walking this walk, um, I've been walking this walk since August 6th of 1989, when I came out of the crack house. Um, Have I been sober that whole time? It depends on how you define that. Um, I, there's no doubt I've been committed to my recovery a day at a time for 32 years. Um, but I think it's going to be really important that we recognize not only that there are many pathways to recovery, but that, um, but that however you walk, you walk, it's not about perfection. It is about progress. Yep. And so I think you understand that. But my point in, in, in telling you that is that um, a lot of people see me as sort of the epitome of the 12-step recovery process. A lot of people say, well, wow, William, you went to Hazel in 1989, you've been sober for 32 years. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Um, I've been committed to my recovery imperfectly since 1989. And that's what matters to me because from that day to this day, everything I've done has gotten me to this point. Well, I think that you are the epitome of it because... I just think about the the bravery and the example that you're, you know, showing by talking about it. Cause I just feel like there's probably a lot of people who would be in, in your situation and they would not share this, you know, they would keep it to themselves. Well, I've struggled with it a little bit because I, I had a contract a couple of years ago from Penguin Random House to write a follow-up memoir to Broken and the working yeah. title was Beyond Broken, the rest mm-hmm. of the story, my journey from addiction, the evolution and revolution of my journey from addiction to recovery and beyond. And, um, and, and I've struggled with writing that story because I, there's parts of it. I don't know how to do the parts of it that include family members whose stories they need to tell that I don't need to be telling, including my own three adult children. You know, you read broken and my three children are little in that book. Well, guess what? They grew up. Yep. And their stories are germane to mine in a lot of ways. And, and so I have struggled with how to tell that story. Uh, and I will tell you this back in, in the mid 2000, mid like 2014, 2015, 2016, when I did have this struggle with um, pain meds and I disclosed that A, I'd had the struggle and B, that I was taking Suboxone as an antidote to it. Um, I ran into all kinds of stigma in this field. And in the recovery community. And it shocked me. It shocked me that um, somebody like me um, could feel all those things that we used to feel in the old days all over again. So I got to talk about it. But to be candid with you, Andrea, I don't have not talked about it with very many people like I'm talking about it with you now. But this interview makes me feel comfortable with the fact that I need to be pushing a little bit more because I haven't finished that book. In fact, it's sitting right over there, two different versions of it on my shelf that it was due to my publisher a year ago. And I just haven't been able to figure out how to tell the story. So I'm telling you. Wow. I feel so honored. So feel True. free not to answer this question, but, but what did that look like with, with um, those conversations with those at Hazleton? 
Yeah, it was tough. I'll be honest with you. It was tough when I, 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 I chose the wrong venue to, to declare openly my running with pain meds and the fact that I was using medication to treat it. And the irony of it is, is that we at Hazelden, as I told you earlier, we've embraced the 12 steps since 1949, right? Well, even we had to change our modality of treatment mm -hmm. uh, back in about 2011 when we discovered that the way we were treating our opioid addicts was not working. Mm -hmm. They were successfully completing treatment and then we were discharging them and they were dying a day or two later because they went right back out to quiet that craving brain and they couldn't and they took too much of a, a, a dose of whatever the opioid was. And so we, we, we're the ones that took a lot of heat back in 2011, 2012 for in, in, in introducing medications into our abstinence-based program. Well, I assume that when I disclosed my own run-in with this, that um, it, everyone would embrace me, right? And so on. And I picked the wrong place, the stage at the Bay Ford Center in February of 2016. In front of I how many people? Hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And not only that, but it was the full board, the board of trustees of Hazel and Betty Ford. It was my colleagues in the organization. And I was a, I was in senior management as the vice president of public affairs. Um, and um, and it was the um, patients and the alums of the Betty Ford Center. Um, and I, here I am telling my story. Did you have it planned out or just like you just felt no, moved in the moment? No, I had a, no, no, I had it. I never give a speech that I don't plan out. And, yeah, yeah. and I had a really good speech. And I said, oh, man, it's going to knock them dead. Wow. Well, like, <laughs> like throwing a boomerang. Um, it came right back at me. And it was and it and it shocked them. And it shocked them in part because um, nobody knew. And because I picked the wrong venue to do it, which goes to show that even in recovery, we make mistakes. Sometimes we make bigger mistakes. And thirdly, the fact that I had been taking Suboxone, I think um, um, people weren't ready for that. And uh, in terms of understanding what it meant to my story and to my platform at Hazel and Betty Ford, I owe my whole existence to this organization. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's been without contention or without dispute. Um, and so... I have still struggled with how to tell that story and why I want to tell that story. And the fact that I'll be honest with you, I have seen the, my pathway in recovery. It has evolved. It has evolved. And the things I do today to recover are in some ways quite different than how I recovered 25 years ago. Yep. Um, doesn't yep. make it mean it's any better or any worse. It just is what it is. It works for me. Um, even the way I even the way I connect with my higher power, I used to believe that as long as I meditated and prayed every morning, that um, that my higher power would take care of me. Well, maybe my higher power is taking care of me, but it's not the way I expected. And um, and and even even I, twenty some odd years down this journey, with all the safety nets in place, even I became susceptible to this illness, which is cunning baffling, powerful, and patient. It waits, it waits. And uh, it waited for me. And there I was, you know, chronic jaw problem, valid prescription, taking those opioids. I'm like, oh, wow, these are nice. And then I could not get off of them the way I got off of alcohol and the way I got off of crack cocaine. But this is just par for the course for you because- you know, initially you have been so instrumental in, in breaking the stigma of addiction. And I think that the, here it is, what another beautiful opportunity for you to break the stigma related to this. I mean, this is such an important fucking topic. Um, cause it is, we're just a completely different ball game. So I see this as the universe, God, you know, presenting you with another wonderful opportunity to have a pretty big influence. Well, let me put it. Thank you. And I, and I need to candidly, I need to do a better job of getting out in front of it. I just have it. And I've used lots of reasons, lots of excuses, but let me just tell you about, this is the moment. Maybe this is the moment I've shared, by the way, I've shared just in a very few select venues or audiences or mediums like 
our, your podcast to start to talk about this, but I've got to start to talk about it more openly, number one. And number two, um, I, I believe that coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. Because mm-hmm. how else can I explain how my life has intersected with these opportunities along the way? No you kidding. Know, some of those, you know, I've written about some of that and broken, but I, there's been a lot more since then. And and I didn't come, I didn't agree to do this podcast with you because I thought, you know, I'm going to come out, not that I'm coming out, but that I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to break all norms and start talking about this. No, I, it just, it just made, it just, it's just a good moment for it. Uh, but I'll tell you a story just quick. If we have a moment, I, back in about 2018, I was speaking in rural North Carolina and I, before the pandemic, I was given three to four speeches a week. Mm-hmm. Flying 125, 125,000 miles a year on Delta for Hazel and Betty Ford. And um, of course, that's changed. Uh, but it, it's hardly any travel now. And Zoom is Zoom. It's fine. But, you know, it's not the same thing. But I gave a speech in a rural area of North Carolina. Of 400 people there. It was a recovering community. Um, and um, I, I talked about my struggle with opioids because I knew I was in a safe place to do it. I was in the middle of nowhere. And, I, and when I talked about that story and I talked about the fact that I had been prescribed Suboxone to help get off of this craving brain of mine, um, a man, after I was done, a man came through the audience. He was crying. He was weeping. He was weeping. And he was wearing a suit and he came up to me. He was a lawyer. And he said, Mr. Moyers, I want to thank you for sharing with me tonight. He said, because I had 20 years, he said, I had 20 years and I, I, I went out on pain meds and my sponsor in recovery said I had to start all over again. Mm. I said, no, you don't. You mean to tell me that you don't think that those 20 years counted? They did count. And who's counting, by the way? Who's counting? And, and he said, you know, you gave me permission tonight to see that. Yeah, he says, I ran into a problem with the pain meds, but all those 20 years, he said, those 20 years, they did matter and they still matter. And I said, you're damn right. They do. Um, you know, listen, there's nothing wrong with giving somebody a medallion for 30 days or 30 years. It's a good way to mark success in recovery. Right. But you don't take those medallions away from people when they have a slip, as it can be called, whether it's a slip of alcohol, a slip of marijuana or a slip on pain meds. You just keep counting. You just you don't start over. You just start again. You know, you just start again. You just keep marching. I think that's the key message for your audience today, which is that, you know, recovery is not perfect, but it sure does beat the alternative. And none of us. None of us. I don't know a soul out there that does it perfectly. Why? Because everybody's human. And if everybody's human, everybody's imperfect. And you know what? In recovery, you can be imperfect too. The key is not to start over. It's to start again. Get up and keep walking no matter what knocks you down. Get up and keep walking and, and walk towards your goal. Yeah. I. You know, a big reason that I created this podcast was, you know, it says in the in the ninth step promises, you know, how our, you know, our story, you know, we will not regret the past nor we help others through our story. I think the big, I think often we see how our active addiction or alcohol, like we can embrace that and see, but I want people to learn how to embrace the shit, the pain that comes up in sobriety. Um, you know, I'm somebody at nine years sober that was leaving work at 11 in the morning to go pull my boyfriend out of the bar, you know? And like, I want to be able to like normalize this this stuff. And same thing with you. It's like, yeah, that happened. But like, that is part of your story. That is part of who you are. That has shaped you into the person that you are today. And just to really embrace this stuff and use it as our fuel to, you know, living a life of purpose and helping others. So yeah, I really just, I, I really hope that this encourages you some, cause like people need to hear this. People need to hear this. And you are a perfect voice to share this message. Yeah, I, thanks. I, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, um, you know, to, 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 to share it. I, I, again, like I said, I, I didn't plan on, I mean, I knew we were going to have a good conversation. We communicated by email a little bit. I'd listened to some of your podcasts. They're very good, by the way. And and, um, and uh, you know, and again, you gave me the invitation. I, I owe it. I owe it to the still suffering addicts and alcoholics and their families to mm-hmm. carry the message as much as I can, whether it's on your podcast or on Oprah or Larry King or, you know, in the New York Times or in the podcast that I do for Hazel and Betty Ford. I'm always carrying that message. But the fact that you've helped to draw out a little bit more that 
the truth of my journey, um, you know, reminds me that I, I owe it to myself, like I owe it to others to be as authentic as I can. And frankly, I got to do a little bit better job of that going forward. Well, it's, it's all part of your journey. So is there anything that you're excited about that's going on at Hazelden that coming up, anything you're working on that you want to, you know, I, thanks. I, 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 I'm hoping we we thought we were past this pandemic, you know, over the summer, I'm really proud of our organization. We have a new president and CEO, Dr. Joseph Lee, great guy, 45 years old, triple board certified addiction psychiatrist, uh, born in Korea, uh, new face, a new fresh face of our organization. He's doing some great things. Um, but we all believe we'd be past this pandemic by now, you know, and here it is the fall of 2021. Um, and we're not in, but our organization is proud of the fact that 90%, 90 plus percent of our, of our employees are vaccinated. Um, uh, and, and we think that's important, not only for our own well-being, for the well-being of our patients and so that we'll be ready to meet the need that's coming. Um, I just think it's a, it's, a, it's a tough time in this country. It's a tough time for people who have mental illness, for people who struggle with substances, for families. And I guess one of the messages I'd leave, um, you know, your, your listeners, because I know that you get a good number of people tuning in who are family members and so on. And I dealt with, I've dealt with, I work with a lot of people and a lot of them die. You know, they do, they, this illness, it's pretty nasty. Um, but I also remind their family members that even when you've lost a loved one to this illness, and even if you have a loved one who's still out there struggling, that you yourself as a mom or a dad or a significant other or a sibling, you need to recover. Mm. You need to recover. And I think this is a message that Hazel and Betty Ford, you know, is really sort of embracing more than ever, which is that we know what the stakes are with this illness, but we also know what the stakes are for the family members of the person who's got the illness. And so if you're a family member who's tuned in, tuned in to try to learn what's, you know, about the solution for your loved one, well, I hope you found it, but I hope if nothing else, you know that you're worth it and you've got to take care of yourself no matter what. Yeah. I hope, you know, you're just as sick as they are and you need to get yourself Some damn help too. <laughs> so true. And you know, I'm never, I, especially in the opioid epidemic, I've talk, worked with a lot of families who've lost, a, particularly a, a child to the disease. And when I, and I see the grief on their faces and then I say to them, so what are you doing for yourself? What are you doing to recover in your own right? And they look at me like, well, what do you mean? My loved one is dead. I mean, I, it's all over. I said, no, it's only beginning. You've got to take care of yourselves. So, because we are only as sick as the addict and the alcoholic in our life. Sometimes we're sicker. And, 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 mm-hmm. and, um, and so it's really important that we take care of ourselves, no matter who we are in, in, this, in this milieu of addiction and, and recovery. We've got to take care of ourselves. So. Well, this has been wonderful. Um, I will... I mean, do you want to be contacted? How can people contact you? I can just yeah. your Twitter or what? I'm easy to find. You know, the best way is by email. I'm an old timer. I've got a Twitter account, but I don't tweet. My office does, but it's W Moyers, all one word, W Moyers, M-O-Y-E-R-S, W Moyers at hazeldenbettyford.org. It's a long sort of. Yeah, it is a long one. Email address. <laughs> But guess what? I answer. I answer my own emails. I answer all of my own emails. You do. And I, I, I do. Yeah, I do because I believe in that. Uh, it takes me slow. I do it slowly, but I do it. So if you're out there and you need help, you know, I, I don't know, if, Andrea, if you li- list resources on on yeah, your. I will. I will for sure. List it on there, and I if you if you're interested in finding help at Hazel Bay Ford or want to talk to me more about whatever, I'm around. Just remember, guys, he's not a clinician. Okay. I'm not a clinician. I know good clinical work. <laughs> I've worked for Hazelin for 25 years and I'm a product of the place. So I'm a beneficiary of it, but I'm not a clinician, but I am a portal. I am a bridge from the problem to the solution. Hmm. Well, this has been, I, I feel so honored and I'm so grateful that you took some time out of your day and I can't wait for everyone to hear this. So thank you. Thank you, Andrea, for giving me the time.
Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. If you did not, you should seek professional help. Uh, Thanks again to William. That was definitely one of my favorite interviews. You know, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. It was our first time talking. He had no idea what I'd be asking him. I had no idea what he would feel comfortable sharing. So I was pleasantly surprised at how the conversation went. Uh, So I received a message this week from someone who applauded my courage and innovation, but said that I have so many fucks inside of me, FUs inside of me that I can't speak without peppering them in a sentence and that that is off-putting and this person loses respect. I don't know if that means she loses respect for me or the podcast, but regardless, I just want to say to that listener, thank you so fucking much for your message. Seriously. I can't help myself, guys. (laughs) You guys can find me on Instagram and TikTok at adultchildpod. Next week, I am talking to three sisters who are going to be sharing about their own unique experience of growing up in the same dysfunctional alcoholic family. So I will see y'all next week. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I am super excited y'all to hear it. It's gonna be a goodie, I promise. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 